Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Britt Barron as she continues our series, A Conversation About Race. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hello, Eastlake. Uh, welcome back to our continued conversation about race and racism in America. Uh, if you missed the previous conversation, I would encourage you uh, to take a listen as we're going to be building on that. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about power and privilege. Um, our previous conversation, we looked at uh, sort of uh, the large scale view of, of race and racism in America, sort of debunking it at the individual level. Like this is an individual thing with individual people who have individual prejudice. This is an iceberg. Remember, we use that analogy of building on things. And so today we are going to talk about how that iceberg impacts us as individuals a little bit through uh, power and privilege. So sometimes in conversations about power and privilege, I know it can feel uncomfortable, particularly if you are white, uh, wrapping your mind around these things and hearing these conversations. And so before we start off, I want to talk a little bit about white privilege and just give you some context for how I am talking about it. What I'm not saying is that because you are white and because white privilege exists, your life has been easy, right? Suffering is fundamental to what it means to be a human being on this earth. We all go through suffering. We get our hearts broken. Um, we get sick, we lose friends and family members. Our dogs cross over the rainbow bridge. Um, any number of things that happen in this life happen to everyone. Suffering is inescapable. And so what I'm not saying is that because you're white, your life has been easy. But what I am saying is that in the, the suffering that is so fundamental to life, if you're white in America, your race does not make that suffering more. So white privilege doesn't make, mean your life has been easy, but it does mean that your race hasn't been something that's made it harder. It hasn't added to that level of grittiness that we all need to have to survive here on this earth. So I hope that makes sense. And hopefully if you're feeling any of that tension, can ease that so that you can really engage with this conversation. We can be a part of creating a new reality. So power and privilege enacts itself and exists a lot through systems in our society. You've probably heard the word systemic racism. And so let's talk a little bit about systems to wrap our minds around privilege. So to talk about systems, I need y'all to do some more imagining with me. So uh, if you can uh, just imagine for me a neighborhood. And for the purposes of this 
uh, conversation, let's imagine that this neighborhood, let's title it low income. Now, right off the bat, there's already some assumptions in your head about what that means. Now, what I'm not saying as we go over this is that all people of color live in low income neighborhoods and all white people live in suburban neighborhoods. That's not the truth. Um, I grew up in a suburban neighborhood outside of Denver, Colorado. But um, economic injustice in terms of housing and neighborhoods and accessibilities is one of the largest ways in which racist power policy and ideas have infiltrated our culture. And so this is going to be an easy thing for us to wrap our minds around. Uh, but this is not foolproof. This is not 100. This is not binary, right? So imagine an in, uh, a neighborhood, we're going to title it low income. And so imagine in this neighborhood, what stores are there? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Just kind of think about it for a while that this is a neighborhood maybe that you live in now, grew up in. Maybe this is a neighborhood that you rarely go to. Maybe you, you can't think of an actual neighborhood in your head. Maybe you're pulling images from TV. But either way, just really sink into to what this neighborhood feel is. So you've got stores and all these things. What kind of buildings? What kind of people? What's, what's it like? And then as we're thinking about this neighborhood, I want you to think about the systems that, that exist in this neighborhood. So systems like education system, justice system, let's say healthcare system. So you have this neighborhood, I hope you have it in your mind. And let's just take one of these systems and let's think about how one of these systems might contribute to the things that we were talking about in our conversation last time about racist power, policies, and ideas, but let's talk about 2022 right now in this neighborhood. So things like education system. How does the education system impact the people in this neighborhood? The neighborhood that you're imagining, the neighborhood that you know, whatever it is, this low-income neighborhood in our country in 2022, how does the education system impact the people in those neighborhoods? I'll give you some examples. You're going to have higher teacher turnover. You're going to have lower school funding. Where I live in California, schools are funded based on property taxes. Property taxes are set based on home value. Home values are set on any number of things, which leaves very low educational funding in neighborhoods with low property taxes. You see how that's happening. So now you don't have uh, new facilities. You're not up to date on technology. You have high teacher turnover. And then some of these racist ideas come in where you have teachers who have um, ideas about the students, right, because of these systems that we're upholding. So those are just a few on the, on the education system. Let's think about another system. Let's think about the justice system. How does the justice system interact with people in this neighborhood? Is there a higher police presence? Is there a lower police presence? Also, where I live in um, California and a lot of places in our country, we have something called a school-to-prison pipeline. I mean, the schools are in direct contact with the prisons so that students in this neighborhood, if they don't do well by a certain age, they just assume that they're going to be a spot for them here in the prison when they grow up. Let's talk about the healthcare system. The healthcare system, you're probably not going to have the state-of-the-art hospitals in this neighborhood. You're probably not going to have maybe any hospitals. You're going to have uh, not as much access to healthcare. You're going to have not as much preventative care. Um, black women are... 50% less likely to be prescribed pain medicine. They are higher likely to um, die during childbirth. We have so many ways in which systems impact real people 
in these neighborhoods. So you can imagine if you are someone in this neighborhood, if you are a person of color in this neighborhood, you might just feel like you are getting your butt kicked, right? So let's go to another neighborhood. I need you to imagine with me a suburban neighborhood, whatever that means to you. Think about what's there, stores, what's it feel like, what does it smell like, all these things. And now I want you to do the same thing. Let's just take a couple of systems. Education. I grew up in a suburban neighborhood. I'll tell you right now, we had IMAX before anyone else had IMAX in, in our school classrooms. My parents um, fought to get me into the school and I was in school with teachers who were telling me about college. Starting in seventh grade, we're preparing for college, right? Let's talk about the justice system. What's the police presence like? It, it's funny to me because if you imagine a suburban neighborhood, you might imagine that there's less police presence, but that it feels more safe. And I'll let you sit with that one. Healthcare system. You've got preventative healthcare. You've got uh, outside area. You've got uh, places to move your body. You've got uh, access to healthier food. So many things. So you can imagine why the systemic experience of living in a place like this may not lead you to feel like you are underwater. That does not add to the difficulty of being human and what it's like to live your life. Okay, now remember, again, I'm not saying all people of color live in low income, I'm not saying there are white people who are low income, there are people of color who live in suburban neighborhoods. I'm using this as a snapshot to talk about ways in which these ideas get upheld. Hey everyone, it's Kristen. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in. I hope that you're finding these messages helpful for you in your everyday life. Um, that's what we're trying to do here is gather around the idea that life is a gift and love is the point and let's give ourselves ways to move forward in that in our own everyday world. Um, so I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for being a part of this community. To those of you who have participated and given financially, we wanna say thank you to you. Everything that we do here happens because people make contributions. People say, I value this place. I want it to exist for me and for other people. And so I'm going to support it. And so we just want to say how grateful we are um, that you do that. And for those of you who maybe haven't had a chance to contribute yet, um, we would ask you to consider maybe doing so. If you find this place beneficial, if you find these messages helpful for you, then um, consider joining us in that way. You can go to eastlakecc.com to make a contribution. Um, and we just always are thankful for the people who want this place to exist. So thanks again for tuning in. Let's get back to the message. Power and privilege, systemic racism, a lot of it rests on one idea. And that idea is that white is normal and everything else is other. So white is normal and everything else is other. So when I talk about these systems and we look at these neighborhoods and we try to wrap our mind around what it's like to experience life in different ways, a lot of how these systems are upheld is because they uphold that idea, right? You wanna know what, there's so many simple ways that we interact with this idea, right? One of the ways in which I know white is normal and everything else is other because everyone else in America has a hyphen. Meaning if you're white, you're American. If you're something else, you are African American. You are Mexican American. You are Korean American. You are Chinese American. You are Indian American. 
So there's this idea in our language, in the way we view neighborhoods, in the way we view people, in the way we view the way people act, that we are going through this lens of the prominent idea of holding our system of power and privilege that white is normal and everything else is other. So that meaning, if you fall into that category of normal, if you are white, then you are not experiencing the pushback of being other. Right now, I want you to just think through your life how you have seen that that idea interact. In our time between this and the next time, I want you to just be keep your eyes open for ways in which this idea very practically takes shape. Something that's uh, really interesting. After summer 2020, and we started really sort of talking about some of these things publicly, we saw a few changes with a couple of, of things that I've always noticed as a person of color. One is Band-Aids. Band-Aids were just always set to match white people. Because what? Because white was normal. So if you are a person of color and you get a cut, you're going to have a white person's Band-Aid on. And so Johnson & Johnson, Band-Aid, all the Band-Aid makers out there 2020 were like, what? We never noticed that. Now we've got different shades of Band-Aids. But how long did we have that, right? When I was a kid, and I think still today, you go to uh, the store, you get a box of crayons, and one of those crayons is gonna be labeled flesh, and then the other colors are brown, off-white, whatever it is. But the flesh color, this is just reinforcing that white is normal. And if white is normal, then it's safe, it's secure, it's comfortable, it is all these things. I was in Target this week, and I'm going to get shampoo and conditioner and I'm going through, there's four aisles of uh, hair care products in the Target by my house. Aisle number one says hair care, aisle number two says hair care, aisle number three says hair care, aisle number four, three-fourths of it says hair care and then at the very end there's a sign that says multicultural hair. It's where I found my hair care products. What's interesting about that is there is immense diversity in the other three hair care lines. There's shampoo if your hair is red, if your hair is blonde, if your hair is naturally blonde, if you dyed it blonde, if it's frizzy, if it's oily, if it's thin, if it's thick. There's all kinds of diversity within that, but that's still all diversity within a certain type of hair. White people's hair, right? And so the, the, uh, the aisle or the section for multicultural hair, meaning you can, have all the diversity you want in the aisles just titled hair care, but something about this needs to be different. We do this over and over and over. This is the preeminent idea that we have all consumed that the policies and the power rests on, that the ignorance and the violence and hate comes from it all rests in this idea that white is normal and everything else is other. Okay, let's talk about what that means for us as people. Remember, um, I don't know if I said this last time, but one of my favorite sociologists, Beverly Tatum, she says, when you're born into America, you're put on a moving sidewalk of racism. And so if you want to do something, you have to walk faster than the sidewalk in the opposite direction. Like we're, we're riding the sidewalk, we're riding the iceberg. That's mixing metaphors, but you get my drift. And this white is normal, everything else is other is, I think the number one idea that most of us have consumed. And that consumption has 
uh, a few to scripture. So let's talk about two ways that we have consumed this idea. And those two ways will be determined by your race or ethnicity. So if you are white, uh, there's something called internalized racial superiority. Let's call that IRS, uh, not related to taxes. So bring the anxiety down. <laughs> and then as people of color, there's something called internalized racial oppression. It's IRO. And so IRS and IRO are the ways in which our consumption of the idea that white is normal and everything else is other shows up really in our life. So, uh, for example, until I was in to my adulthood, I would straighten my hair. Now, you can't see my hair today because it's wild, so I put on a beanie. But I have naturally curly hair. Um, and... I used to think that I needed to straighten my hair because to show up with the hair as it grew out of my head was not good enough. Why was it not good enough? Because it was different. Why was it different? Because white hair was normalized. And so uh, going to, to schools, predominantly white schools, I just remember thinking like, I need straight hair. I need that kind of hair because there's already so many things different about me. At least maybe I can control this one and try to stand out because that wasn't good enough for me. Who I was wasn't good enough. It was internalized racial oppression. I remember reading some books, getting me some things and realizing like, no, I'm not going to do that. Angela Davis didn't do that. I'm going to wear my hair as it grows out of my head naturally. Now, I know what you're thinking like, good for you. That is a personal decision, but that comes with real consequences. Do y'all want to know what year something called the Crown Act was passed? The Crown Act is a law here in California, again, where I live saying that you are not, businesses are not allowed to discriminate, fire, punish black women for wearing their hair naturally. That law was enacted in 2019. So these things of embracing who you are, they don't go without difficulty. And sometimes you could lose your job for wearing your hair the way that it grows naturally out of your head. That's why IRO is so hard to combat for folks of color because it comes sometimes with real world consequences, right? And the same for internalized racial superiority. I have a friend, he's a very successful uh, person in business and he's very direct and he's very like my way or the highway. And uh, we were talking about race one day and power and privilege and finally he made this connection. He's like, I always have just thought that that was a, a product of who I was that I was just loud, that I was just in your face, that I, he's like, but that is a function of my internalized racial superiority, thinking, of course you're gonna listen to me, you should listen to me, I'm a white man, right? And so IRS and IRO are extremely subtle sometimes, sometimes they can be very obvious, but the real work of becoming anti-racism and practicing anti-racism, which is where we're gonna get in our next conversation. But the real work of that starts with you being able to identify where these things exist in your mind. Where have you internalized racial oppression? Where have you internalized racial superiority? The reason that this is so important because something that we say all the time at our church New Abbey, in my life, everywhere I go, is that the minute you begin to other someone, the last domino to fall is violence. So what starts with hair care, band-aids, straight hair, curly hair, what starts with othering something in those smallest ways ends up with George Floyd, ends up with Breonna Taylor, with Trayvon Martin, with fill in a name. 
Because when you are able to other someone, now their existence means something different than your existence. And that is why we are seeing the violence. When we talk about that top of the iceberg, it does not start at the top. It does not start at violence. It starts with the subtle ways in which we tell people that some people are normal and some people are other. And so to correct this course, it is not just going to be big policy change and that is happening. I am so happy about it, but it's going to be every single person searching their heart to undo the ways in which they have internalized the one foundational truth that all of this rests on that white is normal and everything else is other until we can break that down. And it does not feel true. And it is not true by looking at our cultural artifacts and we undo that in our own hearts, then we're never going to get to where we need to go. If you want to be a part of this anti-racism work, then between now and our next talk, and then long after, start to find the internalized racial superiority, the internalized racial oppression, and we need to start pulling that out from the root. Because as long as that idea stays in our brain, we're not going to be able to make it very far down the anti-racism road. So that's our work between now and the next time uh, that we get to chat is find the ways in which you have consumed the idea, internalize the idea that white is normal and everything else is other. Find the ways in which that idea shows up subtly in TV shows, in movies, at your grocery store, at Target. Keep your eyes open for it because if you can see it, if you can notice it, then we can begin to break it down. And that's what we're gonna get into the next time we chat. So thank you all again so much. And I look forward to talking with you again about our own anti-racism journeys. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.